Strap in for another episode of the Mad About Wrestling Podcast. Uh, did he say strap in or strap on? Woo! They give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's a war to respect, yeah, thugonomics, yeah! But I'm a genetic freak, and I'm not normal! You're sick, sons of bitches! You ripped out my heart! I am your host, KP, and thanks for listening. As always, feedback and comments are welcome. You can contact the show at madaboutwrestlingpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, just look up KP Love Puppet. And with that out of the way, what do you say we get on with the show? Folks, let's talk about AEW's all-out pay-per-view that we just had. The hype is off the charts. Some people are calling it the greatest pay-per-view that's ever been. So, was it the greatest pay-per-view that's ever been? Ah, that's you know that's that's to be determined. But I want to talk about a couple things before I review the matches and the show. A couple of the things right out the gate that I just I absolutely loved about the show. Number one. AEW fans. AEW fans are ECW fans. They're hardcore dedicated to the AEW product. I'm not an AEW fanboy. I'm not a WWE fanboy. If anything, I was a WCW fanboy, but even then, I still liked watching WWE. I like watching NXT, I like watching NWA, I watch Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and I'll watch All Elite. I'll watch wrestling. I like wrestling. But the fans, fans can make or break a show. You can have the greatest match in the world, and if the fans don't react, it will come across horribly. And you can have a shit match, but if the fans are reacting, it'll come across epic. And AEW, I, I give you fans, you hardcore fanboys of AEW, I give you all the props in the world. You all were as energetic and into that show as a wrestling crowd could be. Good, bad, whether it was crap, whether it was great, it doesn't matter. You all pop for everything. You all are enthused and all the power to you because... You know, when you're sitting at home and you're watching and you see that crowd that's reacting and chanting and getting involved and they're reacting to everything, that makes a show. I mean, that that's the point where you're like, man, I wish I was there. I wish I was in that crowd. I wish I was in Chicago the night CM Punk returned just because I wished I was a part of that crowd on that night. The other thing I want to talk about. I just mentioned I was a WCW fanboy, so I grew up on Tony Schiavone. also grew up on Jim Ross and Gorilla and Bobby Heenan and Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura. I've had a ton of announcers. But Tony Schiavone was on his game on Sunday night. Tony Schiavone may have called the single best night for what he does for announcing. That may have been his single best night in AEW. I don't know if it was his best night of all time because he spent a lot of time in WCW and WWF way back 20, 30 years ago, and my memory is not that great on whether he called something better in 1992. But 
Tony Schiavone was on the point. He was on Mark all night long. And as you know, I grew up, like I said, with Jim Ross and everybody else. I read the reports that Jim Ross was looking to get off the commentary and move into a backstage role. And I'm kind of in favor of that because Jim Ross, as passionate as he is and as much as he loves wrestling, I don't, he, he's missed a step. He's gotten older. He he does not quite have it like he used to. And a lot of it may just be because there's so many new faces, so many new moves, and things move so much faster than what Jim Ross was ever accustomed to as in his entire life of announcing wrestling. But it sounds like Jim Ross may have lost a step. Again, I caught him calling it AEW Raw. He did it again. This isn't the first time. I love you, Jim Ross. It might be time for you to go on backstage and, and just come out on occasion. But Tony Schiavone and Excalibur, rock solid. I mean, Tony Schiavone, I give him an A+. I give the AEW crowd an A+, and I give Tony Schiavone an A+. Those two, just right off the top of my head, I want to get out right out the gate because those two things were just absolutely incredible and excellent. Now, of course, everything started off with the pre-show. And, of course, you know, the pre-show is just a hype show. It's just, you know, for the crowd that's coming in, it's for those who are getting ready to tune in. You don't get a whole lot that really ever happens on a pre-show. We had the UFC stuff with Dan Lambert and Junior Dos Santos, Andre Arlovsky, and Jorge Masvidal. He keeps making appearances. It needs to go somewhere because right now it looks like there's no end in sight. There's no payoff to this. And something like that, what is the payoff? Are you going to try to get Andre Arlovsky and Junior Dos Santos to wrestle? Because that's not going to work. But if you try to pretend to have AEW wrestlers kick their asses, nobody's going to buy that either because Andre Arlovsky and Dos Santos are legit world-class ass-kicking badasses and would wipe the floor with the entire locker room in any kind of fight. So I don't know where they're going with the Dan Lambert shit. I wish they would just kind of drop it, let it just disappear. Let it be like the who raises the briefcase. Whatever happened to Dan Lambert? It seems really pointless. I don't see how it's going to work to get anybody over. But thanks to travel issues with Pac, uh, we only had one pre-show match, and that was the Big Ten Man Tag. And through all the matches, I wrote down some notes here, and I'll, I'll go through some of the notes as I was watching this thing. And the first thing that popped in my head was, okay, so it's Jungle Boy and Friends versus the Job Squad. That's what it was. I mean, you had Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy, you know, a popular mid-card, lower comedy card act. And they are. And, I, and I'm sure that somebody is going to get really mad because I just said Jumble, Jungle Boy is a comedy act, a lower card act. He is. No one is ever going to take Jungle Boy seriously. If you try to have him on the late night talk show, sitting there trying to promote AEW and, oh, this is Jungle Boy, it's not going to work. He's a comedy act. Now, down the road, that could always change. You know, he could have a gimmick change. He's going to get older. He's going to get more mature. The kid can wrestle, you know, but his gimmick, every time he's been in a big match, he comes up short. He's a guy who can bounce well, he can move well, and he can sell well, and he can make other guys look a whole lot better than what they were. And, well, not better than what they are, but he's going to make people look better. He's like Dolph Ziggler. He can make anybody look great. And Luchasaurus is over their tag team, you know. What else did I have written down here? Matt Hardy looks absolutely awful in the ring. Matt Hardy needs to just be done. 
he needs to go backstage and use his mind or something. He's not a good promo. He never has. He never has been. He never will be. He's not a good talker. We've seen this. He can't work anymore. He's slow. He's broken down. He looks like he's about to take a shit every time he's walking. I'm done with Matt Hardy in the ring. Matt Hardy in the ring is like Nia Jax for me. I just, you know what? I'm, I want to change the channel when he's in the ring. AEW could have cut everybody in the ring except for Jungle Boy and maybe Luchasaurus, and nobody would have batted an eye. This really was Jungle Boy and Friends versus the Job Squad. And that's what, you know, it's, like I said, it's the pre-show. You're just trying to get the crowd amped up. So you throw a couple of popular guys in there. You throw some of the Job Squad in there. You let the good guys go over. You get the crowd off to a happy start. It did its job. I would give it a great a C grade. It was average considering who all was involved. And the match did its job. It wasn't anything that's going to break down barriers. It's not going to change the world of wrestling. It was a pre-show match. Whether those should even be graded or not is up for you to decide on your own. So we open the pay-per-view with the TNT title match, Miro versus Eddie Kingston. Um, hey, you know what? Miro looks great. Uh, he physically looks better than he has in his entire career. AEW has been good for Miro. His offense looked more believable than it ever had at any point in his career. They were tough, I mean, snug, tight. Miro looked good. And Eddie, you know what? Eddie is one of those people whose facial selling is on point. Eddie Kingston's face can sell as well as anybody in the business. He really can. He's great on the mic. He looks like shit physically with his pot belly. I mean, he does, he looks like somebody from, as Jim Cornette would say, you know, an outlaw mud show. And whatever it is, whether appearance matters or not to you. Because for some people, appearance and looks do matter. I think looks do matter a lot in wrestling. They always have. They always will. But regardless of how Eddie Kingston looks, the guy can make you buy into a match. And part of being a wrestling fan is our our suspension of belief. And Eddie's good at that. He can get you riled up. and He can make you feel sympathy. He can sell. His facial expressions are one of the better in the company. And Miro, Miro held his in. I mean, like I said, these two guys work well together. The right man won. I think Miro's on a nice run right now. Uh, quick title change to Eddie I don't think would have done any favors there for Miro. The way he's going right now, the momentum that he's building, his character work, Miro's one of the better people. I would give this match a, a great B. I mean, this wasn't Flair Steamboat. You know, this wasn't Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. It wasn't an A-plus match. But it was Eddie Kingston and Miro, and nobody was expecting Steamboat versus Flair from these guys. It didn't run too long. Uh, there was enough suspense there to make you think that Eddie could get the title. But I think most people knew that Miro was going to retain. I would question the placement of this match. Now, AEW and Tony Khan, they keep saying that they want the TNT title to be just as important and just as big deal as the world title. Then why are you putting it first on the card? I don't like it when the WWE does this stuff. I don't like it when they open it with a world title program. Your curtain jerk, your match should never, ever, ever be for a title that you want people to see as legitimate. We've seen the business model work. You see it with the UFC. 
They can have a big name match open the card, but they keep their title matches for the end, for their co-mains and their main events. And if you want this title to be on the level and seen the same way as the world title, you should not be opening the card with this, because it makes it come across like it's a U.S. title or that it's just a TV title. Opening the show with the TNT title match, I think, was a bad move just from a marketing concept, a marketing look at it, because, again, if you want them to be seen on the same level as each other, your positioning of these two says that the Kenny Omega match is ten times more important than this match. So I didn't like the placement of this match. However, the match was fantastic. It was a solid, good pay-per-view match. And up next, it was John Moxley. And you know what? Whether he's Dean Ambrose in the WWE or he's John Moxley in AEW, the guy is perpetually over. I know everybody is all gaga over Daniel Bryan and CM Punk and Adam Cole. John Moxley was the guy who legitimized AEW to start with. And all these big signings that are coming on that, they're really just ignoring the historical fact that John Moxley was and probably still is their biggest signing of all time. Because, like I said, he legitimized the company. Cody Rhodes was always seen as a mid-carder outside of hardcore fans from that followed him in Japan. Kenny Omega was an unknown in the States. The Bucks were not a great, well-known commodity. Jericho was the big commodity, but wrestling fans knew Jericho was at the end of his career. John Moxley left after being on top. You're talking about the guy who was the world champ, he was the face of SmackDown, he was in the Shield, and he left on his own accord and chose to go to AEW. That was their Hulk Hogan moment. That was their Kurt Angle moment. And I still think, it's, and right now, it's the once the newness wears off, and they start doing ratings four, three, five years down the road. That was a weird fucking order. Four, three, five years on the road. I still think John Moxley is going to be right there as one or two as far as their biggest signings. If things don't pan out with Punk, because Punk got more buzz. But if you go back just a few years, John Moxley joining AEW had as much buzz going on as CM Punk did. He really did. And I, it, it bugs me that people so quickly are just ignoring the history of John Moxley and how important he was to being in AEW. As for his match, he's got a great entrance. That wild thing going on, the ripoff from Major League, it works. It's a crowd participation. He's an overface. That is one of the better intros in wrestling. You see that from time to time. The Sandman had a perfect intro. This is a perfect one for John Moxley. I don't know much about Japanese wrestling. And I'll be the first to admit that I don't follow Japanese wrestling very closely. I don't know who most of the big names are in Japan. So I didn't know who the hell he was fighting. I don't know who Kojima was. But one of the things that I wrote down was, during these interviews when John Moxley, when he came over to AEW and he was wearing the trunks and he got out of the jeans, he bitched and moaned about how bad he hated wrestling in pants and he hated wrestling in jeans. And he couldn't stand that the WWE had him doing it. He wanted to be in tights. And now he's out there in pants and jeans, and I'm like, okay, all right, so I guess he didn't hate it that much. So, like I said, I have no idea who Kojima was. It was my first exposure to him. I had to look him up. I could tell he was an older guy, but apparently he's like 54, 55. He's an older fellow from Japan. They had a stiff match. Um, they had a moment where they started doing the chop fest. And I'm watching it thinking, didn't I just see this the match before? 
because Miro and Eddie Kingston were just chopping the shit out of each other. And Eddie Kingston was throwing those, what they were calling them, the machine gun, machine gun chops. And then Mox and Kojima did the exact same thing in the very following match. I'm like, did they not see the match before? Did they not notice that it was spot, that they took the entire thing from the match before? It was the same thing. I had just watched it. I mean, this was your typical John Moxley match. You're not going to get a wrestling clinic like you're going to get from Daniel Bryan or AJ Styles. He had a garbage wrestling background. He can he can wrestle. We've seen that in the WWE when he had his run. We saw him in there with Daniel Bryan. We saw him in there with different guys. We saw him with AJ Styles. He can put on a good wrestling match. But this was more his forte, just the more of the brawling style, that Austin style, you know, right there at the beginning. Kojima went for the handshake. Mox just flips him off. It was the same thing when Austin came back from his neck surgery. He wasn't wrestling as much as he started brawling. And that's what we're getting from Moxley right now, and it works. The AEW fans eat it up every time he comes out. That is what he does. He's one of the most popular guys in the company and in wrestling, and it works for him. So, you know, keep running with it. Let Mox go ahead and be the, the new Steve Austin-type anti-authority, anti-everybody figure. I did think that the Miro and Eddie match was better. I really do. I thought it had more emotion, better selling because of Eddie. And when, again, the chopping part really brought it down a notch for me because we just saw that in the match before. So I would give this one a C. I mean, given the name power of Mox, and apparently Kojima's huge in Japan because I'm just not that familiar with him. And then right after the match, you had another big name from Japan, uh, Suzuki, come out and him and Mox, what do they do? They start chopping the shit out of each other. I get it in Japan. Apparently, that's a big thing with chop and strong style. And Kenta and Joe were famous for this shit back in Ring of Honor. But we just had it in the Miro match. Mox just did it in the Kojima match. And now he's doing it again. This is, you know, the first three acts of the show are going into this I'm stronger than you, or not stronger, but I'm tougher than you chop fest. And. It's like a super kick party. It's just too much. Too much, too quick, back to back to back. After this, we had the women's title match. Uh, the Good Doctor, Britt Baker, DMD, against the alien, Chris Statlander. I gotta say right off the gate, I love Britt Baker. I, I loved Britt Baker. I, 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 she hit my radar when AEW had their first ever show. And she showed up, and I was talking to my buddy Feast about it, and I said, man, she's going to be something someday. Uh, and now, I mean, I love Britt Baker. She's right there with Charlotte and Tessa and Becky. I mean, she's one of the best women wrestlers in the world. She has her gimmick down. She's got everything perfect. She is on a run and a stride right now. A couple of the notes that I had from this match, and I, I'm going to be the first one here to say that I... Do not think this match was near as good as the people who have been reviewing it are. I didn't think this match was near as good as the people in attendance did. I mean, they got a this is awesome chant that I was shaking my head to thinking this isn't awesome. Statlander is not a graceful person. She moves very rigid in the ring. She's stiff in how she runs and how she moves and how she hits the ropes. She really reminds me of watching Liv Morgan and Dana Brooke when they're moving around the ring. She doesn't have a graceful appeal to her at all. But that that's just a nitpick. 
Baker's a bona fide ring general. I had that written down, and she was. I mean, she led this match. She led it all the whole way. You could see how well this match was being led by Britt Baker. One of the things I noted, and y'all might remember the moment, is I said, good lord, Statlander almost fucked up that superplex. When she had to do the double hoist on the muscle where she almost botched it the first time, when she wouldn't get her up and the doctor couldn't get her feet back onto the top of the turnbuckle there, they almost lost her balance and fell, and that could have been really, really ugly. The 450, Statlander, she overshot that thing by a mile. Even if Britt hadn't moved, Chris Statlander still would have missed. She still would have landed. And then, again, when Statlander hit the big face buster on Baker where she got her up on her shoulders, again, she struggled getting her up there. It was posh and it was wonky. I noticed this on Rampage on Friday night when I was watching Statlander in the handicap match, and I was like, she's not that smooth. She's kind of a little botchy. And then I saw it again, and there was a couple moments, and this was one of them where it was just like, Mm, she needs a lot more work to before she's going to be on the level of a Britt Baker or a Tessa or a Charlotte Flair. Yeah, you know, I made a note here that uh, the crowd chanting this is awesome, but I, I disagree. Uh, Statlander, from what I've seen on Friday night and what I saw against Britt Baker, she's average at best. Britt Baker is just fucking awesome, though. Um, so Britt Baker made this match work well. And, and Statlander did that standing moonsault off the apron to the floor. Just straight fucking face-planted, flat on the floor. Why would anyone take that bump? That is just one of those stupid, unnecessary things that... There was just no, no common-sense reason at all to do that stupid fucking bump. And then right after that, you get a curb stomp by the Britt Baker... Off the steps with elevated leverage and gives a curb stomp to Statlander on the burly covered concrete floor. That was it. That should have been it. You should have had paramedics out there. She should have been taken out completely unconscious. When shit like that happens, it pulls me out of a match. When it gets beyond the point where I can no longer suspend my disbelief. And that was it. If they would have ended the match right there, I probably would have bought it. I would have been like, holy shit, she got fucked up for real. And I would have bought into it. But she got up super slow. Orange Cassidy screaming his head off. And then she dives in right at the nine count. Barely beats the count. Again, the curb stop off the steps. That should have been an EMS takeout. And then after that, after she got back in the ring, Britt Baker hit her with every major move she possibly could. And I even wrote down, I was like, what's next? A stick of dynamite up Statlander's vagina? I mean, it was too much. I mean, you're talking absolute overkill. And if you're wanting to build Statlander up to be the toughest person who's ever lived in the fucking history of existence, then congratulations. You built her up to be the toughest person who's ever lived in the history of humanity. The end was too much. Britt Baker's performance gives me a grade of a B grade on this match. Again, the placement, you're talking within three matches on the card, two of them have already been title matches. I 
don't like having the title matches if they're supposed to be that important placed so much earlier in the card. Not a fan of that placement. I was not impressed with Statlander at all. Again, um, just she did not do anything for me. You could have replaced her with 15 other women, and the match wouldn't have been any different. Um, the fans made it special. The fans made the entire night special. Again, going back to what I said when I opened the show, the fans were absolute an A-plus epic crowd. And, you know, they were popping for this shit, too. But Britt Baker made this match better than it had any right to be because Statlander just doesn't cut the mustard. Not for me, she doesn't. After this, it was the tag title match, the Young Bucks against the Lucha Brothers, or Lucha Bros, whichever you want to call it. The first note I wrote down was, how many strokes will this give Jim Cornette watching it? I'm guessing at least three. Again, I, I, before I talk about the match, I'm going to talk about card placement. Fourth match of the card, third title match. If you wanted to open with something hot, you could have opened with Mox and Kojima. You shouldn't have opened with Miro. I, you could have opened with a hot act like Mox, and that would have been fine. It wasn't a title match. It wasn't a match with any long-term implications. It was just a match with a big-name act with Mox. would have been a great opener. They should, and After that, they should have done the Women's Battle Royal, which we'll get to. Leave some suspense. You know, all right, well, winner of this is going to face the future champion of later on tonight. But here it was, the fourth match of the night, and it was the third uh, title match. These guys, I mean, you knew... If, you, if you're an AEW fan going into it, you knew what you were going to get in this match. If you were a fan of psychology and selling, a Young Bucks match is not anything that you're going to enjoy. It's a it's a glorified trampoline act. And I wrote down in my notes, I said, this is some Cirque du Soleil shit. Um, my wife was in the room and she was watching it and she just got up and walked out. And I was like, where are you going? And she was like, this is just ridiculous. Even she was able to see that it was just way too over-choreographed and way too set up. And again, if you like selling and psychology, you're not going to like this match. The Young Bucks, I've never been a fan of them because I like psychology. I like selling. I like storytelling. I like emotion in my matches. And the Young Bucks are the worst in the fucking planet when it comes to any of that shit. They can pull off some high spots and they'll throw 150 kicks at people. And they'll do some flippy stuff, and it'll be cool to watch, just like watching the kids out back on the trampoline. But I can't buy into anything they're doing because they just, they can't sell for shit. And the entire first half of this match, it was set up spot, set up spot, set up spot. Nobody sold a fucking thing for the first seven, eight, ten minutes of this match. And within three minutes, they were doing shit to each other that should have been match enders, hitting them with stuff that should have put anybody in their right mind down. And they just bounced right back up and just kept on moving. Selling was just not there. And that's an issue for me as a fan. Because if they're not selling the effects of what they're doing, again, it takes away the suspension of belief. I'm a UFC fan. I watch mixed martial arts. I like watching Bellator. I've watched it for a long time. And one thing we've learned from real fighting is when you kick someone in the fucking head or the fucking face, it's lights out. And as many times as these guys kick each other in the damn face, either UFC is lying to us and these people aren't going out cold, or these motherfuckers have the weakest kicks in the history of kicking them. Because how can you kick somebody in the face 57 fucking times without knocking them out cold? It only took Shawn Michaels one, damn it. 
again, the super. I'm not a Young Bucks fan. You know, the finish was weak. After everything they hit each other with, that was the end. And, you know, the cage looked impressive. It was a huge cage. You got these crazy bastards, and then the, we got a high cross body off the top. That was a letdown for the buildup for how these guys perform in matches like this. You know, they had that moment where they were just trading super kicks as they stood around in a fucking circle. And then they turned around and started trading fucking cutters. And I'm like, it was so choreographed. It was over the top. Honestly, I'm like, I know that AEW fans are going to love it. And I know I have friends that were probably jerking it and creaming to this match. Oh my God, did you see that? Oh my God, did you see that? Oh my God, did you see that? I hated this fucking match. Um, for me, it was an F because there was no selling. It was just... Full-on, balls-to-the-walls, crazy trampoline circus shit. But, if you're an AEW fanboy, and you're into this kind of stuff, if you're into the matches that's just go, 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 then you probably gave this thing an A. Um, I'm sure AEW fans are going to like try to tell us that this was the greatest tag title match in the history of tag title matches. It was pro- They're probably going to tell you it's the greatest cage match in the history of cage matches. Not for me, but it, that these guys don't wrestle the style of match that I enjoy watching. And it's a personal a personal taste. So I'm going to throw it as a C, halfway between an A and an F. This match just didn't do it for me. But again, I don't like the Bucks. I don't like that style of no-sell wrestling. I don't want to sound like a full Jim Cornette fan, fanatic here, but this is one of those moments where I agree with him. I just You could have cut out... of what they did added some emotion, added some selling and some drama, and really made this match a whole lot better than just what it was. But it was a balls-to-the-wall car wreck. It was catered to the fan base that likes that go-go-go-go action. But no-sell wrestling just isn't my cup of tea, and I just don't like the Young Bucks. After that, we got the Women's Battle Royal, and again, placement. This should not have gone on before the women's world title match. It just shouldn't have. A placement was horrible. Um, one thing I will say is AEW has a lot of hot-ass women. I mean, whoo! I mean, wow. Talk about an AEW bikini calendar, okay? Give me an 18-month bikini calendar, okay? They have some beautiful women. And we started right out, you know, with uh, the screaming Asian girls. And all I was waiting is for Quagmire to jump up and be like, mm, giggity. Uh, yeah, one of them I wrote down, I will never cheer Nala Rose. Ever. You will never hear me ever, 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 ever cheer Nala Rose. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what anybody argues. That is a fucking dude in there pretending to be one ugly-ass chick. That... Uh, Nala Rose is such a turnoff for me that I have trouble even watching the product when she's on. I mean, I know Santina Morello was a parody and a joke, but Santino Morello was more attractive dressed up as a fake woman than Nala Rose is pretending to be a woman. I can't stand anything to do with Nala Rose. And then Jade Cargill hits, and I'm like, hey, we've got a female Ahmed Johnson. She looks like a million bucks, and she can't work a lick. She may be something big down the road, but they need to get her ass off of the main TV shows, put her on dark, put her on elevation, let her get a fuck ton of ring work in, because Jade Cargill has a long, long way to go to improve in the ring. 
And Jim Ross was talking about it, you know, even during the match, because she's so big, she's so powerful. She has a look because of her bodybuilding background. She gets your attention. Her look commands attention. But, oh, she's, she is not good in the ring. I mean, we're talking barely one step above a fucking Tamina at this point. Has the look, maybe something big, but stuff like this, you keep her in. Keep her on some dark shows. She doesn't need to be a, a key figure in the booking right now. She just, she can't, she can't work, for real. I mean, she's not a good wrestler yet. And then uh, we had the Joker, uh, Ruby Soho, not a surprise. Um, I think everybody online has kind of seen this coming for a while. The live crowd was chanting her name before she even came out. And then she came out and she got, again, one of the great, great things about the show was the crowd loved everything. I mean, they were popping for Sky Blue, uh, a, a nobody that just happened to be walking out. She was the first lady who entered, for those of y'all who don't know what I'm talking about. The first girl that entered was uh, someone brand new, uh, you know, greenhorn rookie, so to speak. And they popped for her. And yeah, they popped for Ruby. And, you know... Here we got an ex-WWE mid-card female just walked in, won the, the women's battle royal, and earned a title shot. Not a star, not a Charlotte, not a Becky, not a Tessa, not an Adam Cole, not a Daniel Bryan, not a CM Punk. She walks right in and immediately gets put right at the top of the card. And if anyone out there thinks that I'm just hating on her, I'm not. Tell me. At what point in her career has she ever been portrayed as anything close to a mainstream star of women's wrestling? NXT she wasn't. WWE she wasn't. Before those two, she wasn't well-known. That was her big exposure. But she just walked in and now you have an ex-WWE girl sitting as the number one contender to the title. The Battle Royal itself was what all Battle Royals are. None of them were ever great. You're hopefully trying to get maybe get a few good moments or big things that will stand out in anybody's mind. Other than Ruby coming in and winning it, I don't think there's anything about this that stood out. I would give it a great D. I mean, it really was just kind of a plotting mess of hot chicks that were just brawling and doing a few spots. Uh, I disagree with the booking. When you have homegrown talent that you've been building up like Thunder Rosa that the fans want to see, and you immediately put them behind someone who's coming in just because they're a hot new free agent. But again, like I said, Ruby wasn't a major megastar anywhere like all these other people they're bringing in, putting at the top. I disagree. They could have had her lose right up there at the end. It wouldn't have hurt her credibility. It would have helped Thunder Rosa, and the crowd still would have been happy. After that, we got MJF versus Chris Jericho, the final battle. If Jericho loses, he would never wrestle in AEW again. I'm going to say right here, right now, that MJF is the best heel in the business, hands down. He's better than The Miz and Roman Reigns because of the limitations he doesn't have that they do have. He can be an obnoxious prick. He can point at his crotch. He can cuss. He can be a douche. And that's okay because AEW caters to a different, older fan base. But he is the best heel in wrestling right now. This was a good wrestling match. Jericho knows how to wrestle. He's lost a step. He's oh, he's bigger than he's ever been. I mean, the guy's in his mid-50s almost. What do you expect? But this match was better than it had any right to be with a guy who's that old and against a kid who's that young. But they put on an excellent wrestling match. 
It had emotion. It had drama. It had suspense. The story was there of two guys who just really, really hate each other. And even though you got one of them, the veteran, Jericho, who can be like, I respect MJF, but he's a douchebag, you still get MJF saying, I don't respect Jericho at all. And the wrong man won. Chris Jericho should have put over MJF right there. Chris Jericho can go off and do his tour on Fozzie, and then he can come back and do announcing. There's a million and one ways to bring him back into wrestling down the road. But MJF should have won here. To be able to say, I'm the guy who retired, Chris Jericho, is a Brock Lesnar conquered the streak moment. He should have gone over to give him even more heat than he already has as a top heel. He could run with I retired Chris Jericho for months on end and garner heat off that. Because he's such a good dick that he could do it. And he can wrestle. Jericho needs to hang him up. We've all seen it. We all know it's there. He can't do what he used to do. And the best thing that you can do as you're going out as an old-timer like Jericho is put over the young talent. And in this case, he should have taken the fucking loss. We shouldn't have had a dusty finish. He should have lost. Therefore, MJF could have used that I-retired Chris Jericho to keep pushing and garnering heat. The fact that this was the big in the ending match here, and, and it should have been, because this shit has drug out for a year. The pinnacle and the inner circle have pretty much fallen off. There's not any momentum left in that story. There's not any juice left. It really has boiled down into the singles feud between Jericho and MJF. MJF should have beat Jericho. And I'd give the match a B grade because it was, like I said, it was a good match. Jericho and MJF told a great story, good selling, good psychology. It had a good pace. The crowd was electric. The crowd was hot. I didn't like the finish because now those three wins that MJF got over Jericho don't matter as much because when push came to shove, Jericho got the win. And if this was the final fight, if they don't come back to this, and if they leave it alone, at the end of the day, the 54-year-old fat, out-of-shape Chris Jericho got over on MJF. And he shouldn't have. He should have put MJF over. It would have been a star-making situation for MJF. And, goddamn, of, of all the booking decisions of the night, that was the one that I disagree with more than anything else because MJF needed that win way more than Chris Jericho did on any standard by any means of booking whatsoever. Jericho was Mount Perpetually over. He's one of the greatest of all time, top ten probably. But his time is gone, and that, oh, just a wasted opportunity to really put even more nuclear-level heat on MJF. Good wrestling match, but M MJF, he's still the star on the rise, but beating Jericho here would have done him a lot more favors. And then after that, it was the match that uh, everybody's been waiting for. It was the most pushed, featured, promoted match going into the show, the return of CM Punk. And I'll admit, I lost my feed for the match because I had to go to work. I I did have to re-watch this match after the show. I had to go and find a, a stream to watch it. And 
pumpkin pants. I expected him to come out in MMA shorts, to be honest. I didn't think he'd wear the trunks like he did in WWE, but I thought he would come out um, with MMA-type gear on. But he came out in long tights, so... Uh, first thing that popped in my head was he kind of looks like the Kentucky gentleman Chuck Taylor. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, I'm not trolling on, on Punk there. It, just, it was unusual to see him in, in long tights. Hey, you know, the crowd ate this up. They were going to eat up anything... Punk could have came out, slapped him in the face, kicked him in the nuts, spit on him, did his grandma and pinned him, and the crowd would have loved it. There was no way that this crowd wasn't going to just eat this match alive, and they did. They ate up everything they did. And CM Punk played the hits, and that's all he did. I expected something different. I expected something fresh, something kind of new. Uh, but CM Punk just turned in a great SummerSlam John Cena performance. He came out and did the exact... He did He did the same match that... He did exactly what John Cena did against Roman Reigns. He played the hits. He hit all his big moves. There wasn't anything new, anything fresh, or anything special. And as I was watching the match, the thought hit my mind is... Is Darby Allin carrying CM Punk to a good match here? I mean, Darby sold his ass off for CM Punk. And most of this match was Darby bounced around like a fucking bouncy ball for CM Punk. CM Punk would hit a move, and he would pretty much go pretty standstill, pretty motionless. CM Punk didn't have to do a lot of moving around. Darby did all the moving for him. And I get that it's seven years, it's ring rust. It was, you know, his first time back in the ring. Jitters, nerves, whatever. Uh, but CM Punk, I mean, he just, he played the hits, and Darby did all the heavy lifting in this match. I really thought we'd see, like, Punk maybe bring in some of the MMA training he's been doing for the last seven years into this. Maybe try to work some submissions. Maybe try to change it up a little bit. But it really was, he, CM Punk played the CM Punk hits. He didn't do anything new. There was nothing fresh other than he changed his tights. And I really hope that he gets that ring rust off or he improves or he changes it or he, or he gets a little fresher inside the ring. Or he's going to get ran by by these guys in AEW. Those same spots, yeah, they popped the crowd because the crowd was going to pop, like I said, for anything. He could have came out and jerked one off into the middle of some lady's tits, and the crowd would have popped for it. He, he could have walked out and just quit. That would be the only thing to get the crowd to turn on him, is he just walked out, laughed, and just left. But he wrestled the same style of match he did seven years ago, with the same moves as seven years ago. And AEW has changed. Wrestling from seven years ago doesn't work in AEW. The pace doesn't work, the matches don't work, the storytelling isn't there in AEW. And if CM Punk doesn't change that, I think AEW fans are going to end up saying, oh, well, you know what, CM Punk doesn't have it anymore. He can't go with these guys anymore. I hope he has some better performances moving forward. I was totally stoked about this. I was looking forward to this match as much as anybody else. It was He played the hits, it was fun, it was like watching a nostalgia trip. It was cool to see. But I want to see something different. I want to see something else with Punk. And I hope that I can get that. Because I don't want to see CM Punk from 2011 wrestling against the guys today. 
for all the stuff that I've complained about or that I've nitpicked about, that I've talked about in here, the one thing that's been the constant is that the pacing and the go, 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 go in AEW and the speed of their matches is way different than anything the WWE has done in a long time. This is like X Division, early TNA type stuff. It sets itself apart, and that's what makes AEW such an alternative. But CM Punk came in and wrestled a 2011 WWE-style match. And I think if he keeps that up, I don't think the crowd is going to stay with him unless he can freshen it up some. I wanted more. Maybe it's because I'm guilty, and I just I wanted it more for myself. I wanted to see him not be John Cena. But CM Punk was John Cena. I give it a grade of B. It was a good match. It was great to see. It was a great visual, a great spectacle. And again, I and everybody else were all happy to have CM Punk back. But I really hope that his in-ring matches get a whole lot better moving forward. And Darby, you know what? CM Punk owes Darby one here. Before he leaves AEW, he needs to put Darby over. And he needs to put him over in a big, big way. Because Darby worked his ass off for CM Punk. All props to Darby. I, I came away from that match a bigger fan of Darby than I was going in. And I came away more disappointed in CM Punk than I ever thought I would be. And it wasn't a bad match. I mean, if this was a CM Punk in 2012, 2013, it would have been a great CM Punk match. But it was the same moveset. It was the same style, the same pacing that he had seven years ago. And AEW is not that company. And that's why everybody loves them. So, CM Punk, step it up, buddy. I'm calling you out. Step it up. Give us something fresh. Give us something new. Show us that you came back for a good reason and not just to be John Cena and play the hits. After the Punk Derby, we had our big cooldown match, which was the Paul White against QT Marshall. Uh, it was a glorified squash match. No one needed it. Nobody cared. It was an absolute waste of pay-per-view time. I I don't like it when the WWE just puts filler on pay-per-view, but that's all this was. This was a Wednesday night show angle or a Friday night show angle. Paul White looked awful. He looked slow. It looked like he was lumbering just to get down to the ring. I mean, if he wanted to get in just for that one last hurrah, hey, congratulations, you did it. Now sit the fuck down before you ruin your legacy because you didn't look good and this was a match that didn't even need to be on pay-per-view at all. The crowd, you know, they were happy to see the choke slam. Nostalgia, I get it. Sit down. You're better than Mark Henry on commentary, but this match wasn't even needed. It was a dud. And then we got the big world title match, Kenny Omega and Christian Cage. Uh, this was this was, in my opinion, easily the best wrestling match of the night. I figured it probably would be. I thought it would either be this or the Punk and Allen match. Uh, I was underwhelmed by the Punk and Allen match for as good as it was. Like I just talked about, I was underwhelmed. This was everything I thought it would be. I know what to expect from Christian Cage by now. We've seen him in WWE. We've seen him in TNA. We've seen him now that he's in AEW. Christian Cage can still go. He hasn't lost a step. He's putting on better matches than Edge during Edge's return. I'll say that outright, that Christian's putting in better in-ring work than Edge. He may always have been a little bit better in-ring than Edge. I think Edge has always had the character part better, 
the the mic skills were better. He had more of a presence than Christian did. But Christian was always been a fantastic wrestler, and I've I've never shied away from the fact that I'm not the world's biggest Kenny Omega fan. I'm not like Jim Cornette. I don't hate the guy. I don't call him you know Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang or any of that stuff. But he's had all this hype that he's the greatest wrestler in the world, and I haven't seen it. I still, to me, Kenny Omega is still many rungs below guys like AJ Styles on the ladder. But he is a good wrestler, and he can put on a good match. And that's what we got here with him and Christian. Uh, the best match of the night happened to be for the world title, so that's a good thing. You always want your world title match to deliver, and these guys brought the goods. I mean, unlike anything that we've seen with Punk or Jericho, Christian hasn't lost a step. He doesn't look a step slower. He's still innovating and changing his offense. He still tries different things. I mean, that, the spear onto the table where the leg broke through and jammed him right in the lower rib. Oh my God, that hurt me sitting at home watching that. And you, they always say anything could go wrong with the table spot. Outside of being impaled or getting slid open like Hardcore Holly in ECW, that's about the worst thing you could have happen is the leg come through and just jam you like that. So kudos to Christian. I'm like, to take that and that much pain, because you know that had to hurt. So kudos to that man for being a trooper and fucking just going right through with it because that had to hurt so bad. And... You know, for this match, I expected 12 run-ins and three ref bumps. I, I expected an overbooking mess at the end, and we didn't get that. Uh, I mean, they came down a little bit. There was some overbooking, because there's always a little bit. Anytime you have a Kenny Omega match, there's always a little bit of overbooking going on. But they didn't go crazy with it, and I liked that. It still came down to a good wrestling match. I don't think anyone and their mother truly believed that Christian was going to beat him for not just the Impact title, but then do it again for the AEW title. So, I, I, you know, a suspension of disbelief. But the crowd was biting onto the false finishes. Uh, but again, the crowd bought into everything all night long. The crowd was electric. One of the better crowds for wrestling than we've ever had. As you can see from this review, I'm not going to say this was the greatest pay-per-view of all time. But this and the ECW One Night Stand may be number one and number two for best crowds all time for a pay-per-view because the crowds were off the fucking charts. And that finish was sick. I mean, Christian, again, kudos to him, MVP of the show for taking the one-winged angel off the top rope like that. I mean, yo, whoo, cringeworthy how easily just anything could not go right with that but he took it like a champ, and they put on the match of the night. And, you know, uh, maybe one of the better Omega matches that I've seen. I haven't seen all of Omega's matches. I've seen him in Mox. I've seen him in Jericho. You know, him and Christian, this was better than the last match. Uh, this has been one of Omega's better matches, and kudos to him and Christian for really putting it on. I'd give it a B plus. This wasn't Steamboat Savage. It wasn't Flair Steamboat. It wasn't Michaels and Taker, um, but this was a damn good wrestling match, and it was a good main event. If it had more suspense as to who was going to win, it probably would have been an A, A-plus type match. Uh, 
that was that's the only thing that I would have to knock it with is just, I don't think that many people really believed in Christian Cage taking the title. But he worked his ass off. Him and Omega had, I said, match of the night. The best wrestling match of the night. It really was. Better than Jericho and MJF, for sure. Better than the tag team spot, a palooza, super kick, organized cutter fest. I really liked the match. I, I can't put it over any more than what, I, what I'm doing. I really thought it was match of the night. Great world title match. Great, great way to end the show because it was the best match to watch. Now let's talk about the aftermath. Let's talk about what got everybody talking coming out of AEW and early into this week. We had not one, but two massive debuts. You all saw the pay-per-view. You know, there, you got the beatdown going on. Jungle Boy comes out. Luchasaurus comes out. The Elite, they're all there. They're beating them down. Kenny Omega's cutting his promo. The lights go out. And you know the whole crowd is just... They know it's Daniel Bryan, or Bryan Danielson. But it wasn't. It was Adam Cole, baby. And the, the roof blew off the building. And people didn't see it coming. It was a shock. It was a surprise factor. That's how you do a surprise. That's how you do a shock factor surprise return. They hit it out of the park with Adam Cole. He came down to the ring. And that's when, it, when he... First got in the ring, I was like, is he going to join the Elite? I, I, you know, I'm one of those people that, yeah, I know that he's friends and they're all cool backstage in real life. And then he kicked the shit out of Jungle Boy, and I was like, okay, now it makes sense as to why Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus came down to help Christian. You had the Job Squad come down, the guys who were not even curtain jerkers, but the guys from the pre-show, the choke artists, the, the guys who lose every big match they're in, but they have enough credibility with the fans to be over and cheered. And Adam Cole kicks Jungle Boy's head off. And he joins the Elite. That was awesome. It made sense to me while Jungle Boy was out there. He wasn't CM Punk. He wasn't John Moxley. He wasn't a super superstar level name to take an ass whooping. And I thought that would... I really thought they were going off the air right there. I was like, okay, so cool. We're coming out of all Elite with a new, basically a four horsemen of All Elite Wrestling now. Omega, Adam Cole, and the Young Bucks. I mean, if you want to talk about a four horsemen of the AEW, that would be it right now. I mean, you can't get, for AEW's talent pool, for how their fans love the Young Bucks, again, I'm not a fan, but I'm in the minority here, and I admit it, AEW fans love the Young Bucks, they love Omega, and now you got Adam Cole. And I thought that would have been a great way. Christian had just lost. Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus got the beat down. You had the new recruits standing tall. That would have been a great way, the perfect way to go off the air. With Adam Cole joining the Elite right out of NXT and WWE. You have the shock factor. Everybody would be buzzing about Adam Cole, talking about Adam Cole this week. All throughout the week it would be Adam Cole. The buzz would be about Adam Cole. Would have been awesome if they ended it right there. And let me just add real quick, the Good Brothers need to fuck back off to Impact Wrestling. They add absolutely nothing to the show. I know they have the All Elite tie-ins and whatever. The Good Brothers, I, they just need to fuck right back off to Impact and, and get out of AEW. 
But that still would have been the best way to end the show. You had a, all you would have had the whole hype of a stronger version of the elite, hot buzz with new free agent Adam Cole. But they didn't. No, they brought out and debuted Brian Danielson. And the crowd lost their minds. And I knew they would. Whenever he showed up, and I thought it was going to be in New York. I really did. I thought the New York 22nd of September show was going to be where he was going to debut. But they brought him in early. And the crowd loved it. And it didn't matter whether where he debuted. Whether it was Chicago, Puerto Rico, New York, Zimbabwe. The crowd was going to pop when Daniel Bryan showed the fuck up in AEW. And they did. They yes-chanted the whole way down. And the first thing that I thought was, why? Why? Why bring him out here and now? Adam Hole, he, Adam Cole's, eva- he just evaporated. He's now going to be the secondary footnote to the, the, to the American Dragon coming in. They just siphoned off all his heat of Adam Cole coming in with Daniel Bryan coming in, Bryan Danielson coming in 30 seconds later. And then Omega Bales, you have the show-ending brawl. You have the new big star, the guy who's been in the main event of WrestleMania this year. He's also won at WrestleMania about beating Triple H and Randy Orton and Batista. One of the greatest, if not the greatest wrestler of all time. And standing in the ring with Christian, who had just lost the world title match. Decorated veteran. Well-loved veteran. But now he's standing in the ring with the job squad. With Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus. One who believes he's a dinosaur and the other one who's a Jungle Boy. So you have the greatest wrestler in the world. Maybe the hottest free agent they could have got since John Moxley and CM Punk has been Brian Danielson. And you're going off, you're ending the show after you just had the elite get stronger than it's ever been by adding Adam Cole. They run off like like cowards after getting a beatdown from Daniel Bryan and two of the lower mid-card comedy acts. You're ending your big show with Adam Cole in retreat and Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus standing tall with Brian Danielson. I know AEW fans are loving it. I know they love that he's there. I love that he's there. I wanted, I want Brian Danielson in AEW. I want to see him wrestle Omega. I want to see him wrestle Punk. I want to see him wrestle Hangman. I want to see him wrestle a lot of guys in AEW. But they just scooped all of Adam Cole's heat. And then you go off the air with Daniel Bryan, the veteran Christian, and the job squad. The lower mid-card comedy act. Nobody's taking Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy serious. And I know AEW fanboys hate that I say that, but again, you're not. You're you're not going to be filling up marquees in Madison Square Garden and selling out late-night talk shows trying to get people to... Tune in to watch a guy who believes he's a fucking dinosaur and a jungle boy. If you wanted Daniel Bryan to stand tall and fight off the newly empowered elite, he should have been standing there with guys like Punk or Mox or Hangman Adam Page, bigger stars in the company to do this with. 
they, it, uh, I did not like it. I can't say that they completely screwed the pooch because AEW, the diehard AEW fans are just going to eat it up and no matter what they do. We've seen that with the exploding sparkler match. AEW fanboys, the hardcore fans, will defend and try to justify anything that AEW does just to say, we worship AEW. He popped the crowd. Yeah, like he was going to pop the crowd anywhere in the globe. It was just, to me, it wiped out the surprise factor of Adam Cole. And it, it, it really, it, it sucked all his heat up. And they did it in two minutes. Because now, yeah, people are like, Adam Cole's an AEW. But the bigger story is the fact that now they have Brian Danielson. Because he's a bigger star than Adam Cole. Adam Cole was a huge star for indie wrestling. He was a great star for NXT. But NXT was barely getting a million viewers a week. People who were watching wrestling, a lot of people don't know who the fuck Adam Cole is because they didn't watch NXT. When you look at Raw's numbers being near 2 million, and you're seeing SmackDown numbers being over 2 million, NXT sitting at 800,000 on their viewership. There's a lot of people out there who just don't see Adam Cole for being a big deal. But Brian Danielson was. But you siphoned off all Adam Cole's heat and all the momentum from Adam Cole that they could have ran with this for weeks. Adam Cole is now all elite. We just had CM Punk. Now we have Adam Cole. And you can build to Daniel Bryan. And then you can build to Bray Wyatt. And then you build to whoever is going to be out there after the new year, whether it's from Japan or Indies or WWE or wherever. But they blew their wad here. I mean, if there's ever a blow your wad moment, that was the end of the show. I'd give it a great F. I think it was horrible to bring him out and overshadow Adam Cole the way they did. The Elite should have stood tall at the end of the show with Adam Cole, Kenny Omega, and the Bucks. And yeah, the good brothers too, because they were in the fucking ring. But again, fuck off back to Impact, good brothers. I don't care about you. But that's how they should have gone off. Christian's down, Jungle Boy's down, Luchasaurus is down, the Elite is standing tall. Instead, the Elite is retreating, Adam Cole is retreating, and you end the show with Brian Danielson, Jungle Boy, and Luchasaurus standing tall in the ring. Hated it. Fucking hated it. It's not... Of the 47 million ways that I could have fantasy booked or thought about how to bring in the American Dragon, that never spawned on my radar to bring him in to siphon Adam Cole's heat and end the big pay-per-view of the year with Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus in the middle of the fucking ring while the best faction in the company is on retreat. With the new hot heel signee and Adam Cole retreating. They're running away from Jungle Boy. I just, I hated how they did that and siphoned Adam Cole's heat that way and ended the show. I just, I fucking, I did not like it at all. Great F. Couldn't stand it. Again, if they would have stopped with Adam Cole and the Elite standing tall, that would have been a great ending. The rest of it just fucking soured me because there's so many millions of better ways they could have fucking handled 
Brian Danielson coming. And, you know, obviously, I'm not going to say that this was the greatest pay-per-view of all time. I don't like the card placement. Uh, they didn't have any match that is ever going to stand out to me as one of the greatest matches of all time. It's going to be remembered for the debut of Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson, and, well, you know, the other guy, Adam Cole, you know. But the most important guy was Brian Danielson because, you know, Adam Cole was just the setup to the fucking stake and the sizzle. And already CM Punk talked about this in the scrum afterward, and now it's getting, it's trying to catch momentum online already real quick. I see it with AEW posters online. People are already trying to say that the Adam Cole, Daniel Bryan signings are the equivalent, if not more important, than Holland Nash jumping to WCW and starting the NWO. If you were in the side on AEW here that thinks Adam Cole and Daniel Bryan or as big a deal, or are as important as when Holland Nash jumps ship, go get your fucking head examined. For one, you you know, you could, you, I'll give it to Daniel Bryan. He's on the level that Hall and Nash were in 96. Danielson is, absolutely. He's one of the biggest stars in wrestling. WrestleMania main event, great exposure, can go. Fucking fantastic. So, yes, he would absolutely be on the level of where Kevin Nash was in 96. But to even remotely try to put Adam Cole right now on the level of where Razor Ramon and Diesel were, you got to be out of your fucking mind. you got to be crazy to think that Adam Cole is a as big of a star and is as well-known as Razor and Diesel, as Holland Nash. No, 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 no. You go back, look at the viewerships, and I don't give a fuck about ratings because ratings change. But go back and look at the viewership numbers. When you had Hall and Nash in the wrestling, you were at the middle of the Monday Night War. It was starting to kick off. It hadn't got super hot yet, but it had started. These guys were in front of programs that were getting five, six million viewers a week. Millions upon millions of people were watching. WWF, and WCW. Their jumping ship in 96 is like when LeBron James left and went to the Miami Heat. When Peyton Manning ended up getting released and went to the Denver Broncos. When Tom Brady just walked away from the Patriots. That's what Holland Nash were. Adam Cole's not on that level. Adam Cole doesn't have that popularity. He doesn't have the crossover appeal. He doesn't have the mainstream appeal. There's not a Monday Night War. Hall and Nash jumping to the NWO, kicked off the war, and led to WCW whipping the WWE so bad that Vince McMahon legitimately was worried about being put out of business and going broke. There's nothing, nothing AEW can do right now that is going to ever ever, ever challenge the financial aspects of WWE over the next 5, 10, 15 years. The WWE is so big. They are such a money-making machine. 
through everything they do that it's not even close. They're not even close to the same company they were in 1995 and 96 and 97. They're a multi-billion dollar money pumping machine. AEW can't touch that. Adam Cole can't touch that. Don't insult the moment of how important it was in 1996 with Holland Nash by comparing Adam Cole and Daniel Bryan. Because they're not as big as stars as Holland Nash were. There's not a Monday night, Wednesday night war going on for them to be jumping into. There is no danger of them putting Vince McMahon out of business or killing the WWE. Is it a big moment for AEW? Absolutely. Is it a big moment for wrestling today? Absolutely. Is wrestling today nearly as popular as it was in the 90s? Not even fucking close. Not even close. You had times in wrestling where the shows were going head-to-head in the 90s, where they were both popping ratings over 4.0. They had close to 10 million viewers between the two shows every Monday night. 10 million. If you add up NXT, Impact, Raw, SmackDown, and AEW, you're not going to get 10 million fans in one week to watch all the programs combined. Don't insult the moment in the history of Holland Nash by trying to compare Adam Cole and Daniel Bryan to that. It's apples to oranges. Apples to fucking oranges. Just let it be what it is. Don't try to make it something that it's fucking not when you're going so far beyond the scale of common sense and trying to say that this was like the formation of the NWO or CM Punk was like bringing in Hulk Hogan. No. Nobody's like Hulk Hogan in the 90s. And these guys aren't nearly as popular as the guys in the 90s. But let it be what it is. It was a good, great moment for AEW. It made the AEW fans happy. It made the live crowd orgasm in unison over and over and over and over and over and over again all night long. Kind of like how I feel when I'm thinking about Britt Baker. All night long. Woo! But don't play this off like it's something it's not. It's not Holland Nash in 96. It's not that big. It's not going to be as important because history just isn't going to let it be defined that way. For one, like I said, you don't even have a, a ratings war going on. You don't even have shows going head to head. You're not in danger of putting a company out of business. But let it be what it is. AEW has gotten a lot of momentum. And they're getting some big-name signings. And it'll be a topic for another day, but AEW is getting into a very, very, very close area here of just being another WWE cast-off show. Because if you people who remember TNA remember how different TNA was than WWE. It was the alternative. And then they started bringing in for all the big names they could get. They got Christian Cage. They had Sting. They had Scott Steiner. Then they had Kurt Angle come in. They had Samoa Joe. They had AJ Styles. They had Robert Roode. They had so much talent. It ended up being to the point where they brought in so many ex-WWE guys that the program just started being seen as WWE light. Now, this may be seen as WWE with an edge. But they're going to have to start being real careful with how many of these people they're bringing in from the WWE. It was just here. I mean, Moxley, Jericho, they needed them to get off the ground. 
I'm not going to complain about picking up Daniel Bryan. I'm not going to complain about picking up Adam Cole. I'm not going to complain about picking up CM Punk. I'm not going to complain about Malachi Black. And I'm not going to complain about Bray Wyatt. Because those are all guys who can bring attention to the product. But you're going to run into a problem, and it'll be a show for a different time, is you're not going to have enough room for all these stars coming in from the WWF or the WWE and the homegrown talent that you have in AEW. And that's going to be an issue that's going to be coming up, and I think we'll see it sooner than later. But that'll be a topic for a different story, because this show was about the review for AEW. I've kind of ventured off here at the end, just on a little tirade about the whole comparison of Cole and Danielson to Hall and Nash. I won't say it was the greatest pay-per-view of all time, but I will say it was one of the best two crowds of all time. So if there's anything to remember of this show, if you want to go back and watch it, you can see the debut of, of Ruby. She she was over. She got a pop. Uh, it was nice to see CM Punk back in the ring. It really was. I mean, I, I know it sounds like I was shitting on it, but it was nice to see him back in the ring. Adam Cole was a great surprise moment. Danielson, the fans are AEW fans are going to go down with a ship on it, no matter what. Um, I'm probably not one of the AEW fanboys that have the opinion that the end of the show was just overkill and siphoned the heat off Adam Cole, but I don't like how they did that. Again, not the greatest pay-per-view of all time. Uh, none of the matches are ever going to go down in history as the greatest of any time. The crowd made the show. Tony Schiavone made the show. You had some moments. The, the debuts were great. You know, they're going to be there in AEW history and lore. Good show. Good pay-per-view. It was fun. Not the greatest of all time. But AEW fans that watched it, I'm sure you all loved it. Um, you're going to tune in for the next show. Whether this show got enough people to buy into it and then to tune in this upcoming week and the weeks to follow, we'll find out. You got Jericho and different guys out there saying within just a few months that they're going to be hit 2 million views. They're going to be beating Raw. They're going to be beating SmackDown. SmackDown and Raw are proven commodities. You have SmackDown, which is on Fox, and they're getting, you know, 2.2 to 2.5 million on average, and they have all that time. I don't see AEW pulling two and a half million viewers in a matter of months. CM Punk barely got them to go up to a 1.2 to 1.3 million, and he's one of the biggest names in wrestling. Adam Cole's not going to be that guy because he was only exposed to less than a million people anyway, and most of those fans already watch AEW as is. NXT and AEW did have a lot of crossover appeal on the fan base. Danielson's a huge star. I mean, he's the one guy who, other than CM Punk, has had that exposure to the show being watched by two to three, three and a half million fans a week. Because in 2011, that's the kind of numbers that we were seeing for Raw. And now we saw it when he was on SmackDown. You know, you were seeing him and Roman Reigns. That final show was like 2.7 million fans. Now, are all those fans going to jump and follow Daniel Bryan? Probably not. Will he bump, move the needle? That's what we're going to find out. All the money being spent, all the promotion, all the hype on Punk and Danielson and with Cole, we're going to find out how much they're going to move the needle. You got Jericho predicting that within just a matter of months that they're going to be at over 2 million fans and doing the best ratings of any show. I doubt it. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think the 10 o'clock hour is beneficial to them. 
a big chunk of wrestling uh, fans aren't going to be able to tune into the product because you've got a lot of wrestling fans that are kids that are young. And the last thing their parents want them watching is somebody out there saying, redeem these nuts. Uh, my son's 10. I don't want him to watch AEW. Teenage me would love AEW. I'd be like, oh, hell yeah. Redeem these nuts, dog. Redeem these nuts, homie. I don't want my son walking around saying, redeem these nuts. So you're going to have a lot of fans in wrestling that aren't going to tune in just because of the time and because of the product and the age and who they're marketing to. But whether they can do what Jericho says and be at two, two and a half million people watching the live shows here within a matter of months, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it'll happen by the by, by summer. I don't think AEW will be pulling 2.2, 2.5 million viewers every week. But we'll see. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment that kicked off the big wrestling boom. Maybe history will reflect and show me is absolutely wrong and this pay-per-view to be the most important pay-per-view since Bash at the Beach 96. Maybe this was the pay-per-view that's going to spark the revolution in the new popular era of wrestling where we have three, four, five million people a week watching our beloved show. I doubt it, but we'll see. Good show. One of the best crowds ever. And on this note, I will be like Kenny Omega, and I will bid you adieu and tell you good night. <laughs>